All those youngsters, three years of age to the sixth grade, you're taking off for your Bible study time. Those here in the auditorium, let's take off to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 for our Bible study time. Colossians chapter 2 as we do our Bible study together. In Colossians chapter 2, would you follow along as I read this section that we're going to be speaking from this morning. Colossians chapter 2, starting with verse 1. For I would that you know what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him while you are rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving." Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead body. When we, uh, this week I was reading a story of a gentleman who was in ministry, and we went out golfing with some of his friends. And they usually would go together and just have a good time. None of them were really good golfers. But this one fellow who was writing the story, he said usually he did better than the rest. And on this particular day that he was out there, he was just absolutely cruising, having a great golf game. They were up to about the seventh hole, something like that, and he was already several strokes ahead of him. So his friends had at first been razzing him, teasing him, but by now, the other three golfers, they weren't talking to him. They were kind of miffed at him because he was doing so good. So he comes up to that hole, and he stands there, and he looks down, and they've never been on this golf course before. He's somewhat unfamiliar. He's trying to figure out, okay, where's Oh, there, look at that. He says, it takes this, this hole now, takes such a dog leg to the left. That's kind of unusual. His friends didn't say anything. Hmm, was about it. And he says, well, I guess if I try to hit it over those trees, I'd land it in the middle of the fairway instead of trying to go this way and then over. They didn't say anything. They just kind of shook their heads. And so he hit the ball. Beautiful shot. It curved over the trees and went left just as he was hoping and thought. And now he was really proud of himself, turned and just didn't say a whole lot, just kind of smiled, and they all just shook their heads. They came up, and all three of them, it all went to the right. Instead of the left, they all went off to the right. And so he said, that's really too bad. They didn't say a word. They just shook their head, and they started going their direction. He went his direction. He got beyond the trees where he thought his ball had landed, and it was high grass. It was just kind of unusual. And he watched his friends. They were, in a way, they were going the other direction trying to find their balls. And so he found it. And he thought, wow, this is going to be a tough shot. I don't know if I can get it out of here, get back on the fairway. And so he took his club and he shot, and it was beautiful. Put it right in the center, lined up perfectly for the next shot to the green. And he turned all of his friends. He thought for sure they would have had to admire that shot. They hadn't turned. Their backs were, they were facing the other way. And he was disappointed. So he just kind of walked along and just thinking, man, I'm having such a great day. They're upset. They don't want to talk to me. They missed that really good shot. And he got, came out in the middle of the fairway and he was ready to set, line up to do his next shot. And he looked up and there's a whole bunch of guys on the green. And he's thinking, how did my friends get over here? They're not dressed like my friends. And only then did he don that he was playing the totally wrong hole. He had teed off to the wrong fairway. His friends never said a word. They never cautioned him. Why? They were angry with him. They were jealous of him. Paul is writing in Colossians, and he really cares for the people. He cares enough that, as we already looked at, he's writing them. He's praying for them. He said that, I have suffered for you. And he goes on. We talked about all these things the last couple of weeks. Paul cared enough for them that he said, I would even toil and I would wear myself out to minister to you. That was all at the end of chapter 1. Then he picks up with that same thought in chapter 2, verse 1. We already read the words. He said, I would that you would know what great conflict I have. The idea of that word conflict is the idea of an inner struggle that you want to do more. It's what you feel. When all of a sudden you've gotten the message or the note or you've heard that all of a sudden a grandparent, a parent, a brother, a sister, a spouse, somebody who's a friend, they have some medical problem, they have some physical problem, and you 
are conflicted, not in a bad way, but in a good way that, oh, I've got to do something. I've got to do something. I've got to help out. I'm struggling. What can I do? Oh, pray for me. Yeah, but I want to do something more. You know how that struggle, that's what he's talking about. He's saying, that's the way I feel. I want to do more for you people. I'm struggling in the sense of, I want to stretch myself and agonize to help you out even more than what I've done in the past. In fact, he describes, look at verse 1, that his struggle, his conflict, his agonizing for them is great and it's continuous. I keep on having this heavy-duty struggle. The, the idea of great only shows up one other passage. That's in the fire, the tongue of the fire, that it is a great fire. And so he says, I've, I've got this real burden for you people. I want to help you out. But not only them, verse 1, for the Laodiceans who are nearby and for all the other believers. And so he's got this real concern, but then that translates into giving a caution. You're concerned. You're concerned about a sibling, so you give a warning if they're headed the wrong way. You're concerned about your children. So if they're getting themselves into some kind of trouble or you know, walking where they shouldn't walk, you're going to give a warning. You're concerned about a friend. That if they do something really stupid or they, you know, they're unaware of some danger, you're going to warn them. Real concern warns. So he gives warnings. And that's the gist of these verses that we just read. He's going to mention that there are some things that that are really dangerous. Look at the words he uses. He says, don't be beguiled. Don't be tricked by somebody's false reasoning. Beware lest any man spoil you. Don't be judged by others. And he even concludes towards the end of the chapter, don't let somebody talk you out of your spiritual rewards in heaven. So he's giving these cautions. And this whole section is cautionary. And he's going to mention four major dangers that could come to them. Now, before we look at those dangers, let me make the observation. These dangers could happen to anybody. If you look at the chapter and look at the wording that we've read, he's talking about somebody could beguile you, any of you. Somebody could, could all of a sudden spoil you. Beware all of you. So what he's talking about is saying to any of the believers any of them, and all of them, they could fall into these snares, these traps. In fact, even good, strong people, if you go back to chapter 1, he's already talked about their faith, their hope, their love. And yet he says, for all of your good stability, you could be vulnerable to these problems. In the middle of this section, he says in chapter uh, 2, verse 5, he talks about, I'm joying and I'm writing this, while I am joying and beholding, and he talks about something in their life, your order. That's a military word. It's the idea of you are taking your position in the faith. You are standing where you're supposed to. And then he adds to it, and your steadfastness. The idea of you are standing together, which brings us to this thought. Any believer is susceptible to some of these dangers. Any church could fall into these dangers. You and I need to be very, very cognizant, aware of what are these problems, these dangers that were there in the church of Colossae, and then we need to watch out if they hit our church. We need to watch out if they hit our homes, our lives. And so what he's basically doing in this chapter is he's saying, you've got to wake up. You're in the road of life, and some of you are getting drowsy while you're driving down, and the rain and the wipers and the darkness has got you where you're starting to fall asleep. And, and Paul is sitting in the passenger seat, and he says, Wake up! Wake up! There's some dangers down the road. There's four of them. Let me highlight those four this morning. The first danger that he says any of us could fall into, and it's a big problem, is division between believers having problems and conflicts between one another and dividing the body of Christ. He mentions it when he says in that beginning verse, he's talking, he's saying, I have this great struggle for you and for all those people that, here's your hint clause in verse 2, that your hearts might be comforted while being knit together in love. What he's talking about in this text is, I want you I want you, and this is what I'm really struggling for. I really struggle. I want you to be encouraged, to strengthen one another, to build up one another because of the input. That's the word comforted. He, he, he quotes, um, one of the authors quotes, William Barclay is a tremendous uh, scholar of the word of God from years gone by. And he says this word shows up in ancient literature where it's a general writing his troops. The troops have been beaten in battle. They don't even want to go out to battle. So he sends them this message. And in this message, he was performing this comfort, this encouragement. And he rallied his troops by his speech, by his encouragement he gave. That's what Paul is saying, I wish would happen to you. 
I want you, I really pray for this to happen in your midst, that you would build one another up and speak those words of encouragement coming beside each other while you are being knit together in love. And he's using a medical term. That knit together is that idea that your joints, your bones, your tendons, your muscles, they all work together. They're designed in such a wonderful way that they would help one another to grow, to do what they're supposed to be doing. In fact, I was reading an article that talked about you know, how we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And he was giving the, the idea that you know, in our bodies we have three, three trill, 30 trillion cells, excuse me. And within each of those cells you have the nuclei and you have all this different, this different DNA code. This code that operates the cells so that they operate together to perform all this type of growth that takes place. Which is an amazing thing to see how the body grows and the, the body repairs itself and how, how we develop as individuals. But it's all written in there uniquely for you so that you look the way you do and your, your size is the way your size is and your, you know, your looks and your eye color and your hair color and all those good things, you know, they're unique to you. And this article is going on and saying how this is such a wonderful machinery that God has put together. And they talked about and how they figured this out, I don't know. But if they said all that, that is in the DNA code, we're all of a sudden put like a computer program that was a printout of everything within that computer program that a single cell, if it was all printed out with what DNA is there, how it should work and function and grow, your one cell would have 4,000 volumes of information, the average size of a half by 11 book. And so you have all this information in, in just one cell that's in you. And then they went on to say if they took all of you and then they put this in book form, there would be so many books written by your body, how you are to work together, how everything is to grow, that those books would fill the Grand Canyon on just you. And not just once, but 40 times over. This is how God has put your body to work together fearfully, wonderfully made so that everything is supposed to be cohesive and strengthening and growing and building and creating that growth together. Well, that's what he says is supposed to be happening here. That God has designed so much uniqueness in such a phenomenal way that we're supposed to be working together to help build each other up while being knit together. You know, we can't, we can't grow independently. We can't do all of what we're supposed to do one by one and singled out. There's supposed to be that unity within the believers. And he talks about that unity, that the comfort, that growing together, strengthening one, one another in love on, on, on a basis that is constantly happening. And it's being done in everybody's life. And if we're doing it right, he says, here's what's going to happen. There, your, all of our hearts will all of a sudden benefit and grow that we come unto the riches of and then he talks about what riches can happen when there is unity, when there is growing, when there is building, when we are encouraging one another, when we are teaching one another, when we are instructing one another, when we are sharing with one another. Then all of a sudden, we all can come to the point of full assurance of understanding. The word literally means we will understand with confidence what God wants in our lives. The moral code the will of God for our lives. And he adds to that, and to the knowledge or the full confidence and understanding, fully comprehend what is the mystery of God. We talked about this last week. The mystery of God mentioned in verses 25-26 of the previous chapter is how God put together the Jews and the Gentiles and put the church together. And what he's saying in this simple phrase is, I want you to work together so that everybody would grow in knowing and understanding the will of God for their life and how they should live in a holy, God-honoring fashion, and that they would understand the deep truths of Scripture. Now, taking that phrase, just say, okay, what does this mean to me? What does this mean to you and me? God doesn't have favorites in this family. That all of a sudden, somebody here has a special ability and opportunity to understand, and the rest of us don't. That's what the Gnostics were saying. That's what the false teachers were saying. They were saying, in essence, you are un unable to comprehend the will of God. But me, as your Gnostic teacher, I can understand the mysteries. And you have to depend upon me to give you this information because you can't know it. And he's, Paul's saying that's not true. 
God doesn't have a special favorite in the congregation. He wants everybody to understand the truths of how to live. What is God's will for your life? Where you're supposed to make decisions and how you're supposed to make them. But we're supposed to help each other. We, we can't grow. You can't grow. I can't grow. Unless we are working together in unity to help achieve this understanding of truth. To, under, to know the will of God. So you and I need to adopt this as a body, as individuals. We don't want to leave any believer behind. We want to be able to help out every age group. We want to be able to share the deep meanings of the Word of God with the kids, with the teens, with young adults, with young parents. It can happen, and it should happen, if you are contributing to that idea of growth and helping one another and building one another. But it won't happen if there's division, if there is conflict, if there is animosity, if there is a feeling that I am too good to be taught by so-and-so. I am too good to teach so-and-so. I have greater knowledge that is so superior, it would be a waste of my time to teach it to kids. That type of divisive attitude is exactly what he's talking about. Don't go there. But it's not the only one. If you and I went through the New Testament and highlighted in the epistles, what were some of the divisive attitudes that caused an hindrance to the churches? We'd list these out. We would find out that, hey, there was a big-time problem with prejudice. That the Gentiles and Jews, ethnic classes, that, that overflowed into the church not, not fellowshipping with one another. We don't have as much here in our Gentile culture. But we do have prejudice that can't be allowed in a local church. We can't have a prejudice over race or over skin tone or over a prejudice over financial status. A prejudice against age groups. That would be wrong. That's divisive. It would be wrong for us to all of a sudden ignore certain elements in the church because they don't contribute the way others contribute. The Grecian widows were put aside. They were, they were people that could really enhance the ability of the church, give monies. They were widows. They were broke. And they were being ignored. That could happen if we're not careful. That even a church that is solid and has good order and steadfastness could all of a sudden become extremely prejudiced that some individuals within the body wouldn't want to fellowship with others because they don't contribute to me. Or it goes like this. In Corinth, they had the problem when they gathered for communion, they would also do a supper. The rich people didn't want to eat with the poor people. The poor people were being put off. You and I have to avoid that. That we look down on somebody in the body because they don't dress like we dress or smell like we smell or are as rich and drive the vehicles that we drive because they're, they think too much of themselves or we think less of them. That's a divisive attitude. Divisive attitude is Yodius and Syntyche. We don't know what their problem was, but it was two ladies that had some type of a fallout in the church of Philippi and they were arguing and they were sucking in other people to choose sides. We could go to the New Testament and say, oh, here's a problem. You pick your favorite teacher. I am of Paul. I am of Paulus. I don't want to hear so-and-so preach, and when they preach, I'm not coming. Because, you know, I I only want to hear my favorite pet preacher. Could that happen in our midst? Sure. Would that hurt the body? Yes. Because different preachers and different messages are designed to give you a full diet and a full complement of the teaching of the Word of God. And if you say, well, I'm only going to listen to so-and-so and and -and so-and-so, you're not getting the full preparation of different studies to help you to grow. Here's a division that often happens, and most commonly in the New Testament. Different people had different standards. They had different standards about what feast days they were going to observe, what, what ethnic holidays, different standards about eating certain foods that were offered to idols and some didn't want to do that. And we know that, but bringing it to modern 2020, it could be those different preferences that we have as far as what we do for entertainment, what, what media devices we have, what we think about, in, I, I think a modern day danger is attitudes about masks or no masks and diminishing some individual because they're wearing them or they're not wearing them. That's a personal choice. And he's saying, we don't need to be divisive over those things. We don't need to be divisive if you have whatever type, you know, silliness, but it does happen. Some people don't want a fellowship with those who have Macs. They want a different computer. How silly in the body of Christ. How silly in the body of Christ that if I were to get up and say, you know what, 
I'm better than you spiritually because I am wearing a tie this morning. Okay? How idiotic. How idiotic to make a cultural choice become a spiritual standard for judging other people. And he's saying we don't want that. We don't want where people wouldn't give up their rights for the sake of others. We don't want a diatrophies in the church lording it over the others and saying he's better. We don't want this attitude that if somebody comes to the body and repents, that we won't forgive them. Well, that's exactly what happened in Corinth. And so he's writing and he's saying, we can't allow this. We've got to stand against this. And these are subtle divisions that happen in good churches to good people, to good families, to good relatives to good believers. And it ought not to be a part of our lives. Let me be more pointed. It ought not to be a part of your life. That you will not fellowship with some other believers because of some petty differences that would hinder your growth and hinder the growth of the body. So he's warning. This is a subtle danger. It comes and I am agonizing that you have unity because Christ put you together as a mystery binding you together. Then he goes on, he warns about the other next problem. The next problem, which is even more subtle, the next problem, which is even more dangerous, but happens so quickly, sneaks up on us, is a discontinued growth. What I mean by that is what Paul mentions in this passage. He says, as you jump down into the text, he says, as you have therefore, as you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk ye in him. Now, if you just take that phrase, it's a command. It's a command to keep on walking. And it's applying to every single one of you. Keep on walking in the Lord. This idea is just as you by faith accepted Christ, now by faith you keep following him. That phrase walking in the Lord shows up here a couple times in this book, shows up a lot in Ephesians, and it has the idea of this. It has the idea that in your everyday life, you are more and more Christ-like. You are acting more Christ-like when you walk, when you talk, when you treat and encounter other people, when you have problems, when you're driving down the road and somebody is doing something dumb on the road, you act like Christ would act. When you're dealing with government, when you're dealing with, with, uh, con- with enemies or, or people that bother you, you become more and more like Christ. When you deal with your problems, you are becoming more like Christ. That You are growing to become more and more like him. An author put it this way that I found very, very challenging. I don't want to bore you, but I thought the way he phrased it was excellent to get me to think. And maybe, just maybe this would stir your thinking what we're getting at. What if for one day Jesus were to become you? What if for 24 hours, Jesus wakes up in your bed, walks in your shoes, lives in your house, assumes your schedule? Your boss becomes his boss. Your mother becomes his mother. Your pains become his pains. With one exception, nothing about your life changes except for whose heart you're following. Your health doesn't change. Your circumstances don't change. Your schedule isn't altered. Your problems aren't solved. Only one thing changes. What if for one day and one night, Jesus lives your life with his heart? Your heart gets the day off, and your life is now led by the heart of Jesus Christ. His priorities govern your actions. His passions drive your decisions. His love directs your behavior. What would you be like? What, peop- what would, uh, would people notice a change? Your family, would they see something new? Your coworkers, would they sense a difference? What about the less fortunate? Would you treat them the same as you do now? And your friends, would they detect more joy? How about your enemies? Would they receive more mercy from Christ's heart than from your heart? And you, how would you feel? What alterations would this transplant have on your stress level, your mood swings, your temper? Would you sleep better? Would you see sunsets differently? Would death seem different, taxes different? Any chance you'd need fewer aspirins and less sedatives? How about your reaction to the traffic? Would you still dread what you are dreading? Better yet, would you still do what you're doing? Would you still do what you plan to do this next 24 hours? Pause and think about your schedule, obligations, engagements, outings, appointments. With Jesus taking over your heart, would you change any of those? Keep working on this for a moment. Adjust the lens of your imagination until you have a clear picture of Jesus leading your life. Then snap the shutter, frame the image. What you see is what God wants. For we read in Philippians 2.5, Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ. 
That's what we're talking about. Jesus is saying, and through Paul in this text, he's saying, walk in him, act like him. And this idea is ongoing progress. Keep on doing it. Keep on walking. And you know the truth. If you're going uphill and you keep on, don't keep on pedaling, you're going to go backwards. So in this text, he's going to say, okay, how do you keep on going? How do you keep on walking in Christ? The next verse gives you some examples of what this involves. In fact, he's going to use picture words. He's going to use three of them that are very, very understandable to those days. That they would say, the readers could all of a sudden stop and say, oh, walking in Christ means I would be like this. And the first picture he uses is like a tree that's planted. He uses the participial phrase, the idea of you are rooted in Christ. Keep on walking in Christ as you have been rooted in him. And he's giving the idea that you, just like that vine in the branches, you are placed in Christ. Therefore, what happens is you get your nourishment, your sustenance from him. He's feeding you. He's strengthening you. He's giving you the stamina you need. He's giving you the stability because you're anchored in Christ. You're rooted in Jesus Christ. Some of you have been with us on a mission trip. Went to Arizona. And some of you had the project during the mission trip to gather up the tumbleweed that would go all around Regeneration Reservation's compound. And that tumbleweed wasn't huge in the sense that heavy, 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 but it was prickly. And it was a big difference from the trees that grew there. The sagebrush, the tumbleweed, there was, it was different in that there was a root system that was totally different. The typical tumbleweed only has one root. The typical trees in our backyards, they have lots of roots. They're more stable. They, they spread out usually, like they say, about the size of the spread of your trees. There's your branches underground. Not the tumbleweed. The tumbleweed doesn't have the same growth. It doesn't have the same stability. It's blown about with every wind of doctrine. And so he's saying you and I are to be rooted in Christ, relying upon him, praying to him, abiding in him. Did that happen this week? Did it happen this week that you took advantage of your relationship with Christ, that you went to him in prayer, that you nourished from his word, that you hungered at his feast, of, of his, that you took advantage of what, a, what uh, tremendous relationship and fellowship you have with him. I was reading an account of a woman who was a wealthy woman in one of those villages along the Scottish coast. And as she was in that turn of the century, last century, electricity was coming through the village. And to the surprise of all the villagers, she was the first one to order, this old willow woman, the first one to order electricity to be installed in the manor house in which she lived. They couldn't believe it. She was such a person that was stayed in all of the traditional ways. But they put the electricity in. She was happy, and everybody in the village was stunned. But then a couple of months went by, and the people from the electric company that was providing it came to her house, and they asked her, is everything okay? Yes. Is the electric working? Why, yes, it does. Why would you ask? Well, we noticed that, according to your meter, you hardly use any electricity. Oh, I use it every day. I turn on the lights when it gets to be dark so I can light the candle, and then I turn off the light, go to the next room, turn on the light, light the candle, and turn off the light. She's like many believers. They have all of this source in Jesus Christ, but they use him so little. So little prayer, so little Bible reading. They don't get the nourishment. And he says, like a tree, if you're going to walk in Christ, and if you're going to avoid that danger that afflicts so many where you stop growing... Then, then you need to remember you're rooted in Christ. But then he gives another word picture. He talks about like a house, like building. And he makes the comment, while you are being built up. The idea literally is the foundation has been laid. And there you have the foundation, and now you're going to build upon it. And by the way, foundations are great. I'm really glad we have a decent foundation. Okay, If we didn't have a decent foundation, you sitting over here, that wall would have come down on you a long time ago. Because it's a flex wall. But the foundation holds it. Now, let's go back to 2000 when this was being built. And there was a foundation here. Some of you remember that we came in and that's all there was, was a foundation. What if we said to them, that's it, we've had enough, we got a good foundation. Okay? What would that be like in January, sitting on the foundation and worshiping with no walls, nothing else? You see, you and I say foundations are great, but what do we do with the foundation? we got to build upon it. Otherwise, what good is the foundation? That's what he's talking about in this text. He's saying you've got to keep on building, keep on building. And he adds to it, while being established, the word means literally strengthening one another. It's like the bricks when they were putting them around on these perimeters of our walls. They just didn't stack them up. They staggered them to a degree. But then they put the mortar. They put the cement in between. 
And in some places they even poured the concrete or put the rebar to keep them strengthening one another. That's what he's saying is happening here. You have a foundation and now you're supposed to keep on building each other up. That goes back to the unity. But then he says you've got to keep on growing, keep on building, keep on growing, keep on building. Now it made perfect sense to the, to the Colossians that they would, when he talked about using this building, because they had two earthquakes around this very time. Two devastating earthquakes. One totally destroyed the city after this letter was written. But they would understand the idea that he says, keep on building and make sure you have a good building, good foundation. So you bring it back and you say, okay, what is? What is this idea? The idea is we're supposed to keep on building our lives. You get saved. You have that foundation. But you're supposed to grow. You're supposed to be improving in areas. You're supposed to be growing where you say, okay... I'm going to grow, I'm going to take the standards, the teachings of Jesus Christ, and I'm going to help that into, put that into my life, so now the way I respond to other people, I'm becoming more and more like Christ. So that the way that I do my family, I'm becoming more and more like Christ towards my spouse, towards my kids, towards my siblings. I'm working so that my testimony is improving and getting better and becoming more of what Jesus wanted it to be. I'm building my career, my choice. I graduated, I'm in college, and I'm, I'm adopting the principles of Jesus Christ for my life that I seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and that impacts how I build. And he goes on, he says, hey, wait a minute, that also includes you and me helping one another. You and me helping one another to grow, which is absolutely incredible. We're to be praying for one another. We're supposed to be encouraging one another. We're supposed to be sharing truth with one another as iron sharpens iron. We're supposed to be helping one another in the sense of refreshing when we get together after you're wore out from a week of craziness in the chaotic world that you get refreshed by even fellowshipping with other saints and bringing some things to a sanity. You and I say, hey, wait a minute, we're supposed to help out the younger saints. The ones who are recently in coming Christ, they look at you, they figure out from the way you live, how it's supposed to be done as a couple, how it's supposed to be done as a parent, and that provides great example for them. That's strengthening, that's building the wall together. The compliments, the encouragement, all of this together to say, keep on growing in Christ. Keep on growing. Then he gives a third, he gives a third illustration. That's just not only a building, not only a plant, but he's talk, you're like a river. A river. Always overflowing is literally the idea. While you are overflowing your banks, literally, that's the concept. Abounding. And it's like the typical river of the Middle East that all of a sudden this river would rise in the springtime and it would all of a sudden send out nourishment to, the, to beyond the banks, into the farmlands. Very, very understood by the River Jordan. Understood even in this area of Colossae since they were on, on the Tychus River and they were growing there and that's where they had their center. All of a sudden, they would understand this whole idea that the river of refreshing, that's what we're supposed to be like. We're supposed to be building one another, helping one another by a river of thanksgiving, praising and blessing. <laughs> you ask yourself, when it comes to helping other people, Am I like a dried up stream, a trickle, a lazy river, or do I overflow the banks? When it comes to the way that I give praise and thanksgiving at work, when we talk about COVID era, am I like, when it comes to the thanksgiving, am I like an overflowing stream, river, that is helping others, or am I a dried up brook that only complains? Growing. Growing in that area of thanksgiving. And so you and I come back and say, okay, did we discontinue growth this week? Did we really, did we fall prey, did we fall victim to this pothole in the road ahead of discontinued growth? And you, you've got to ask yourself, hey, listen, how did it go this week? Did you grow in your fellowship with Christ? Did you this week show greater patience towards other individuals? Did you, in the way that you conducted yourself, the way you spoke, did you become more like Jesus? Did you even think about treating others more like Christ? When, when you think about, okay, the idea of sharing your faith, did, was there any improvement lately? Or have you gotten any more silent? When, when it comes to the idea of forgiving others, are you becoming more like Christ when all of a sudden a family member really ticks you off? When you look and say, okay, when problems strike, when all of a sudden, you know, we've got economic issues and we've got all these things happening, do you become more stable, more steady, or more panicking, more frustrated 
Is there growth in your life? That's what he's commanding. That's what he's expecting. That you're going to produce more and more praying for your family. That you're going to more and more encourage others. That you're going to more and more give out praise. Has there been growth? Or are you, like some of these he's warning, that he says, even though you've had a good background, even if you had a good past, you've got to be careful. They're beguiling you. You're one of those who is slipping. So he yells down to you, wake up. Beware of the dangers of division. Beware of the danger of discontinued growth. Beware of the third danger. The third danger is deceptive teachings. Now, by now, some of you are saying, okay, let's get done. Let's be over. This is so critical that in my heart, I want to stop and quit just to keep you awake. But at the same time, this is one of the most deceptive, uh, one of the most dangerous problems right now. Because we've been told that in the latter days, there's going to be more and more deception. I'm convinced in my heart, we're living in the latter days. It, I mean, this is such a crazy world right now. It just lines right up. And Paul writes and he says, okay, listen. You who are good, strong, steady, you better be careful. You who are really well trained, which is most of you. You better be careful because beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy, vain deceit, after the tradition of man. The word spoil means to come in and capture you, to kidnap you away from the truth, from the gospel, to make you a prisoner. And he lists what it is. And may I make this suggestion? Okay, parents, young people, listen closely. Some of the greatest opportunities for kidnapping is in higher education in America. You've got to be careful. You've got to know the truth. You've got to know what the Word of God is teaching so that when you get encountered, you go to college, you go away, and you get bombarded with all these new philosophies that question God, that question Christ, that you stand firm. The, tr- the statistics are astounding. How many young people from Bible-believing churches are denying the faith after going off into higher education? That doesn't mean higher education is wrong. It means some people aren't being careful. They aren't listening to the stabilizing truths of God's Word. Some churches aren't teaching the kids well enough. Some parents aren't training well enough. We don't see it as a danger. This passage ought to just smack you in the face and say, watch out, watch out, watch out, it's there. They can come through philosophy. And not not all philosophy is bad. That's love of knowledge. We want to have love of knowledge. But he's talking about bad philosophies. He's talking in this text about vain deceit. How they twist things. Isn't it amazing how our society twists words to make bad look good? Okay, I'll, I'll give you just a simple illustration. Okay, abortion is made to look good. Because it's not called taking life. It's called pro-choice. And it's so subtle that it makes it look good. And, you know, and, and you know, all of a sudden we, we see the parades and we get the, the concepts of different lives mattering. Bottom line is all lives matter. Okay? The word of Christ died for all. Okay? And easily get caught up into, into these public swings without saying, hey, what's behind it? What's behind it? And he's warning and he's saying, hey, listen, don't get caught up in these human traditions. Don't get caught up. And he adds something that I'm really not, I'm not sure what he means. Okay? That's probably what I shouldn't be saying to you. But he adds, after the rudiments of men. I don't know exactly what he's referring to. Here's what are the popular interpretations of the rudiments. It's the ABCs. It's the basic ideas. It's, it's the building blocks of whatever you're talking about. Music, alphabet. That's what the word has a meaning. And so some say, well, he's talking about the basic ideas of philosophy in that day. We had to do with the four different elements. The wood, the fire, the matter, the wind. Or it has to do with the basic ideas that there's spiritual uh, happenings because of astrology. And the stars affect what, what we do. The horoscope. Or some suggest what it is, is it's the initiation rites that the Jews would have. That in order to become the Judaizers, in order to become really a follower of Jesus, you have to then do A, B, C right after that. You have to practice the things the Jews did, you know, with their feast days, the circumcision, all those different things. That was a problem here. I'm not sure which one it is, but I do know this. These dangers, these teachings are dangerous. That's what the text says. 
that people are coming in and they're presenting false ideas that are snatching away the hearts and minds of souls. And he says, we've got to be very, very careful. Oh, by the way, it's real today. We sit here and say, oh, well, it doesn't happen. We don't have to worry. We're in our lofty spot. Ah, ah, ah. Didn't Jesus say, beware of false prophets who come in sheep's clothing? Didn't we read in scriptures where Paul warns the Ephesian elders that when I'm gone, be careful, these savage wolves will come in and they won't spare the flock. Don't we read in the epistles where Peter predicts that the false teachers will come among you? They will even deny the Lord who bought them. The idea is they're going to say, Jesus isn't the Savior, so-and-so is. Or I can save myself. Isn't there the idea that, that given in scriptures that some of these false teachers will be very immoral and covetous, greedy, make the big bucks, and become popular by whatever they do? Eyes full of adultery, who love the wages of unrighteousness. And I'm not saying, and you, you, wouldn't, you, you would say it would be foolish for me to say, we're not saying that, that every person who's rich or every person you know, who's in ministry and gets, gets a, some type of profit from that, that they're evil. But I am saying false teachers are characterized not only by bad doctrine, but bad conduct. Selfish, greedy. And what he's going is, goes on, he says, hey, John writes this, He's a liar who denies Jesus as the Messiah. He's an antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. And then he goes on, he warns us in Galatians, that if anybody comes in, Paul says, even if I come back and I teach you something, contrary to, by, to you must be born again. If I teach you, you can get to heaven by baptism. If I teach you, you can get to heaven by good works. If I teach you that your family will get you to heaven, let me be accursed, he says. But aren't we flooded on Sunday mornings with churches that teach, if you join our church, you get to heaven? If you get baptized, you go to heaven? Doesn't Christendom abound with people that have false teachings, according to Scripture, that aren't following it? We're, we're warned that there's going to be people that are going to be all about genealogies, all about these, these you know, dynamic, dramatic, fantastic ideas and these myths and these legends. They want to reinvent Jesus. They want to be teachers of the law. They want to be in charge. But he says, beware, beware. In fact, we are told this. The Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter days, some are going to depart from the faith. Why? They gave heed to de deceiving spirits and doctrines out of hell, which include forbidding certain people to marry, which includes commanding people to abstain from certain meats, which are all to be received. Asceticism, celibacy, whatever it may be, those are false teachings. We don't want to say that today because we might offend some other church. It's on tape. Following those teachings is following the doctrines of demons. The Word of God is clear. But you and I need to be aware of this. We can't be caught up in this. We can't be deceived by some of those who come and say the resurrection is already past. I, I read a book this week, part of a book, that said we are living in heaven now. I, I'm sorry, I just look and say, how stupid can you be? I read, read another account this week of a church in the Midwest that this church that claims to preach the Bible, they have a new method of discipling. Their discipleship is that they assign different members within the body. All of a sudden, you would be assigned to somebody who is matured. They become your mentor. And what you do is you have to absolutely submit to them, denying yourself so you can show you're worthy of Christ. Deny yourself and listen to everything they tell you for two to three years. They tell you what to wear, what to watch, what to buy. They can tell you how to handle your kids, your spouse, and whatever that mentor says, you must listen for at least two to three years. And if you are consistent, then you get to mentor somebody else. They use the word mentoring. I use the word slavery. That's wrong. That is absolutely, but people are falling for it. 
Because this helps me to become more spiritual by denying myself. See, the Word of God is very clear that these are dangers. These are real threats that are, that are catching on. You and I must understand that there are basic teachings to Scripture. That's why we're going to take the time. Some of you say, well, I don't need it. Yes, you do. We all do. We need to know the foundations of the Word of God. We need to know the basic principles of the Word of God so we can discern what is wrong. We need to know the Word of God. We need to contend for the faith. We need to resist doctrines that would say that all of a sudden you get the special things from the Holy Spirit that nobody else can get that makes you spiritual and the rest of us are the have-nots. We need to resist the idea that all of a sudden the, the idea that you can get to heaven by good works. We need, to, we need to resist the idea that if you don't follow my creeds and codes, you can lose your salvation. You know, and so you have to really kowtow down. We need to resist ad- adding more books to the Bible than what was originally in the scriptures. Or all of a sudden people are getting dreams and visions where the scripture says when that which is complete has come, then those little tidbits will vanish. You and I need to be resisting false teaching, but it will never happen if we don't know the truth. Which means that you parents have got to be teaching the truth. Which means we as a church have got to teach the truth. Which means that, yes, is this, uh, is this difficult for, for you to sit and listen to me to do a tirade for an extended period of time. You wish it were five minutes. I wish it were five hours. We compromise, okay? How important is it to know and understand the truths of Scripture and not just grab a verse here or there out of context? To get deep into the Word of God, to teach the truths of the Word of God. You need to watch out for the final one. This one is very simple. Diminishing Christ. Diminishing Christ. Watch where he ends up. Watch his subtlety of his transition. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy, vain deceit, tradition, rudiments of the world. Not after Christ, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And right away, those of you who know this and remember the word of God, you go, ding, 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 ding. Oh, he's taking me back to what he's already mentioned in chapter 1, verse 18. He's already mentioned that Christ is to be preeminent above all. He's bringing it up again. Why? That's his theme. His theme is the idea that Jesus is God. That in Jesus dwells, permanently resides, over and over constantly, the pleroma of God. In other words, what he's saying, Jesus is and always was God. Jesus is deity. Jesus is creator. Jesus is master. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is to be never, never diminished or dethroned in your life. If he is... Oh, well, think this through. If Jesus is removed from the authority in your life, well, yeah, division will happen. Because now it's not so much what Jesus wants between us, it's what I want and feel I deserve. When Jesus is diminished, then all of a sudden, yes, there will be a discontinuation of growth. Yes, then you don't care if you grow any more this week. You are completely satisfied with where you're at. You're good enough and you're you're satisfying yourself. But if he's enthroned and if he's in charge, then you're saying he wants me to grow. He wants me to change. He wants us to get better, to be conformed to the image of his son. Yeah, if, if Jesus doesn't make any difference, you can teach anything you want and anything goes. And let's just everybody be happy with whatever is being taught. If Jesus is dethroned, if Jesus is taken down, if he is not exalted as the God, the truth, the life, and the only way to get to heaven. The thing that we do in our house, hide and go seek is a big thing. So even with grandkids, it's like, let's play hide and seek, let's play hide and seek. So a couple, of few weeks back, uh, one of the families from out of town was visiting, and so the other grandkids in town, and they were all over, and so while the parents were visiting, I thought, well, I'm going to entertain the grandkids, spend some time with them, and we'll go and play hide-and-seek. So naturally, when I said, let's play hide-and-seek, naturally their response is, Papa's it. That, that, that makes sense. Okay, you guys go hide in the house, not in the basement, but upstairs. You hide in the house, and I'll come and find you. So after that was done, then it was, okay, now I get to be one of the hiders. 
It's my house, and I know where the better hiding spots are. <laughs> so I found that really good hiding spot. Somebody after the morning service said, where was it? If I tell you, you'll tell Preston, and he'll know the next time. So I'm not saying. But I found a really good hiding spot. And so I was there, and as just listening, I could still hear everything, and I could hear the feet running past. Hey, did you, did you find, you found so-and-so, found so-and-so, found so-and-so. And now all, uh, whatever there was, the four or five of them, they were now running as a group. Where's Papa? Where's Papa? Where's Papa? And they were running, and I could hear them in this room, and that room, and that room, and that room. And, you know, they never found me. <laughs> Here I am, very proud, in my mid-60s, that I can outthink preschoolers. Okay. <laughs> And then after a while, it got really quiet. And I'm in my hiding spot thinking how clever I am. I can't hear them. So I came quietly out of my hiding spot. I'm looking around. There's no kids. They forgot about me. (laughs) They were all in the basement playing something else. Have you done that to Christ? Have you forgot about him? Have you dethroned him to the point that you, you're, letting, you're letting stuff happen between one another? That you aren't growing the way you should? That you don't care about learning his truth? That needs change. That is the most subtle and the most caustic of all these dangers, we dethrone Jesus Christ. Father, by your grace, help us not to do that. Help us not to forget about you in an hour from now. Help us not to ignore you tomorrow. Help us not to become so content that we are satisfied with where we're at prick and prod and poke us so that we are constantly seeking to mimic you to be more Christ-like at home, at work, today, around the table, that we stop and we think, what would Jesus do? Help us. Help us as a body to avoid these dangers. Help us as families to not fall prey to these, these assaults. Help us as individuals to magnify Jesus Christ in whose name I pray. If you would like to talk about your relationship with Jesus Christ, I'm going to stay here at the front. I'll gladly share scriptures with you or get somebody to share scriptures with you to show you how you can be sure you're on your way to heaven. If you have a need, come and see me. If not, we'll see you tonight, 6.30. We'll do our service, our Bible study on foundations, and then the teen things and kids things.